Welcome to the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. This event is a part of our Global in Impact Discussion Series by founder and moderator uh, Patricia Shoker, uh, IWP alumna. This event will follow the Chatham House rule, which means that attendees may use the information in this lecture but may not reveal the identity or affiliation of the speaker or any other participant. Our speaker this afternoon is Lieutenant Colonel David Oakley, um, who is a FA-59 strategist with over 20 years as a national security professional within the U.S. Army and the intelligence community. He currently serves as an assistant professor at National Defense University's College of International Security Affairs in Washington, D.C. David has an extensive and successful military career, which began in 1998 and includes service in the CIA's clandestine service training program as a staff operations officer. Dave and his wife, Kristen, have four children, Taylor, Tanner, Tatum, and Tyler. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Hey, thank you very much for the warm welcome. I was, made me feel at home, and so did the tornado outside. I'm originally from Kansas, so. So, um, thank you, this is a great opportunity for me. You know, thank you to Patricia, thank you, um, you know, for coming out on this day when it's raining outside and luckily the sun's shining now uh, to listen to me talk about the, you know, ramble on about the books. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, one of the things, as was mentioned, I, I teach at National Defense University and I'm always fascinated with when I speak to my students about like why they chose a certain topic. And so I'll, I'll begin with telling you a little bit of, about why I chose the topic. Uh, then I'll quickly go over just kind of the, 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 the broad outlines of the book. Um, by decade, and you'll see what I mean in a second. And then I'll uh, highlight six points, kind of lessons learned or conclusions I drew from the book, and then open up for questions. So, well, as was mentioned, um, I'm, I'm now a military officer. Um, is this too loud? Am I pretty, pretty loud? Okay. How's this? Okay. So as was mentioned, uh, I was I am an army officer. I used to be a CIA officer. And so uh, a few years back, I was at a school at Fort Leavenworth called the School of Advanced Military Studies. And uh, one of the requirements is you have to write a monograph based on an operational topic. And so I was kind of wrestling with what to write, write about. Uh, and so I was always curious um, about the CIA-DOD relationship. Uh, the reason why is uh, I have affinity for both organizations. I worked at both. But anyone who's ever dealt with the two organizations, uh, realize they're very different culturally. Um, yeah, the military is very hierarchical, uh, is very process driven, the, the CIA is not. Um, and so I was curious. I was curious about why these two organizations who um, share missions many times uh, and, and a common lineage in the OSS were so different. So I took the opportunity to to research it, and this is what I came out with. Um, 
So as, as part of my research, what, what I ended up doing is, and I'm going to highlight some of these uh, in, interviews because I, I find them fascinating. So I apologize ahead of time. Um, my wife always tells me I, I tend to go off on tangents and tell these little stories, so I apologize ahead of time. But I think it's really interesting. Um, at the end of the day, this is about personalities. This is about humans. And so I like to tell little stories about some of the people I interviewed or that were brought up who I um, believe made an impact and effect on the, this relationship. Okay. Um, and with that, um, my story begins in the 1980s. And so I'm sure everyone here is, is familiar with Goldwater Nichols, the, the push in 1986 to increase jointness. Well, General David Jones, he was the, he was the commander, of the, he was the chief of the, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time. And so he went before Congress in 1983, and he made the argument to Congress that we might have a department, but we have individual silos of services. So we're not operating as a department. So he pushed and said, we must increase jointness. We must empower combatant commanders. We must empower the chairman so we'd operate as a, a department and not individual services. Um, when he made this argument, around the same time, there was two events that occurred. Um, you have the invasion of Grenada. And the invasion of Grenada really, uh, uh, I guess, supported his argument. Because if anyone's ever seen the Clint Eastwood movie, um, yeah, Heartbreak Ridge, they depict some of it, some of the problems with jointness. If you've seen the movie, you see a guy calling back to his headquarters on a, on a payphone to do call for fire because the communications weren't linking. So you had that. Uh, you also had the Beirut barracks bombing. Uh, where, uh, you know, over 200 Marines died. Um, from both of those and the investigations afterwards, um, the findings supported General Jones. So I knew this story. I think we're all familiar with this story. What I didn't realize was at the same time as David Jones was making those arguments um, about increased jointness, there was another argument that was about increased national intelligence support to the warfighter. So at the same time that David uh, Jones was saying that you had Congress people making arguments that we need to increase human intelligence. We need to increase human intelligence for force protection. Um, that was with the Long Report, which was the report that came out after the Beirut barracks bombings um, said that we need to have force protection information from human to inform the commander on threats. Um, in regards to the Grenada, you had the argument that you needed uh, human intelligence to help support planning um, to enable operations. And if we would have had better human intelligence, then the, the operation would have gone much smoother, the planning would have been better. And so um, that was, that was kind of novel uh, in the in sense that the, the CIA and national intelligence was never built uh, or originated to support the, you know, purely focused to support the warfighter. But here was an argument being put forward by Congress people that no, they needed to shift some of their mission or mission towards um, supporting the warfighter. Yeah. And so, 1986, Goldwater Nichols is enacted. Three years later, you have an invasion of Panama. 
and everything didn't go perfect. But in you know relation to how it went uh, six years earlier in Beirut and in Grenada, it was much better. And so you had Congress, you had people within the Department of Defense, you had individuals like uh, Congressman Mike Skelton from Missouri um, congratulating the Department of Defense for improving jointness. But while they were sitting there congratulating them, they also recognized once again that there's a lack of national intelligence support to the warfighter. So one of my favorite lines was um, from some, some a, a congressional statement on you see it up there, but basically this other side of the coin that Ike Skelton was talking about was the national intelligence support to the warfighter side of the coin. So, let's see, make sure. Okay. Now, although this call for increased national intelligence support to the warfighter had been around um, during Panama in 83, um, it really came out during Desert Storm. And so what I find interesting about Desert Storm, I think today, whenever we talk about Desert Storm, we, we sit there and we, we think about the 100-hour war, right? And we sit back and we, we believe it was a foregone conclusion. You know, how could Saddam ever have you know, invaded Kuwait? Um, you know, he knew he was going to be defeated. But I think that's, you know, that's kind of shaping um, history based on our contemporary perspectives. Back then, it was much more controversial. You know, we had not really been in a major conflict since Vietnam. And there were the ghosts of Vietnam. And so one of the things that I was ignorant of until I started researching it was the fear was so palpable of the amount of casualties going into Desert Storm that the Pentagon ordered like 50,000 body bags. You had congressmen, um, you, you, you had congressmen like Senate Armed Service Committee Sam Nunn or the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Chairman, Chairman David Boren, urging President Bush not to invade, to give economic sanctions more time. And the reason why is because they feared another Vietnam. They feared a quagmire. Um, and I'll touch a little bit on that because that becomes important later when we talk about intelligence reform. Um, and so this, you had the kind of the policy push in, in um, um, the effect on intelligence that, I'll get, as I mentioned, I'll get to um, later. But you also had kind of the operational. Um, and so up there you see General Norman Schwarzkopf. Um, he's one of the kind of interesting individuals in, in my research. Um, and, uh, you know, many people, uh, there's, there's a few people that, to be honest, um, I'm a little harsher on, I think, than, than others. Um, I would... I, I would argue, rightly so, and one of them is General, General Schwarzkopf. And so, after Desert Storm, uh, General Schwarzkopf complained about national intelligence support to the warfighter. Uh, he said that he, he, he did not get the support that the combatant commander required. Um, part of this was based on a controversy over battle damage assessment. And so back to the, the pressure about casualties and the fear of casualties, um, one, of the, one of the objectives was to attrit the Iraqi forces uh, to a level to where it would reduce casualties significantly. The problem was 
there was no set standard to assess how much the Iraqis had been attrited. So you had intelligence, national intelligence organizations like the CIA using one calculation. You had the commander's uh, sitcom using a different calculation. And there was a fight that came out about this. And so one of the, one of the individuals I interviewed, um, uh, his name just escapes me now, but he was the J2 at the time, McConnell. Admiral McConnell later becomes the director of national intelligence. Uh, he told me of a meeting that occurred to where um, he gets called in with Colin Powell um, and the CIA director and some analyst into Brent Scowcroft's office to discuss the issue about BDA and to make a decision on when it was time to cross the berm and to attack. And the, uh, of course, both sides were sticking by their analysis. Um, but at the end of the day, Scowcroft made a decision to defer to the commander on the ground because he had a better understanding. And so they, they attacked. Now, years later, despite what Schwarzkopf said, um, after action reviews found that the CIA was actually closer to being accurate on the battle damage. But it was, it was, it was irrelevant. The Iraqi military was not as strong as we had thought um, in the 100-hour the war. Uh, they were qu quickly defeated in the 100-hour war. Um, this frustration by Schwarzkopf over BDA wasn't his only frustration. And so, if you remember, Schwarzkopf came back to the United States, and he's a hero. He is the you know, successful commander who did, defeated the Iraqi army. He avoided another Vietnam quagmire. He was so popular, there was talk about giving him a fifth star. He was so popular, he got a $5 million contract uh, for Bantam Books to write his autobiography. Now I can honestly say my contract was not five million. But um, so you have this commander that's very, very popular. Um, and while he's while he's back, he continues his argument that he was not um, supported by national intelligence. And he's making that argument. Now, where I'm critical of Schwarzkopf is I think Schwarzkopf is very parochial. He viewed that the rest of government should be supporting him. He was the combatant commander. He did not appreciate that the other government agencies, um, while there might be a collective effort, there wasn't a, subordinate, uh, a subordinating relationship um, between them and him. And so he's back in the DC area. He's commenting to journalists about the lack of national intelligence support. Uh, this raises the concern of Senator Warner from Virginia who was on the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence at the time. Uh, one of the interesting stories uh, I was told was um, of a time when Warner's folks in his office calls um, Jonas Schwarzkopf's office and said, you know, the, the senator would like to speak to the general about his um, issues with national intelligence support. The response that Warner got was, well, the general is a very busy man. He can't meet with you right now. And so um, um, he just can't do that. So Warner got off the phone and called uh, uh, Secretary of Defense Cheney's office. Uh, miraculously, some white space uh, popped up on the general's calendar, and the general and Warner met. Uh, now, according to the, the interviews I did, during that meeting, um, or prior to that meeting, um, the uh, Schwarzkopf J2 
General Jack Leidy, um, pulled him aside and said, Boss, before you go talk to the senator, I need to actually tell you what national intelligence and military intelligence did to support you as a warfighter. And so I think one of the stories, I, and I highlighted this, this in my book, although it's not the focus, is it's pretty, if you look back on Desert Storm, it's pretty remarkable, um, the support that the combatant commander received. And as you see with, the, with the, the quote from General Powell, the other military leaders did not have the same position as Schwarzkopf about that level of support he had. So concepts that we see now, like the Joint Intelligence Center, National Intelligence Support Teams, um, all these, all these structures um, to support a combatant commander, to support a warfighter, a lot of them were put into place during Desert Storm. And so General Leidy explained to uh, Schwarzkopf about all these things. So when Schwarzkopf went in to meet with Warner, he tells Warner, I had some time to think about this. And I think I probably got better support than I have been, you know, out discussing, um, and, and so I, I appreciate the level of support. Warner said thank you, and said, you know, it'd be nice if you'd go out and tell the media this, so you can change the narrative. Um, Schwarzkopf agreed and left, but he never changed the narrative. In fact, did he not only not change the narrative, in that $5 million autobiography, he actually went right at the CIA. And he said, you know, and I can't paraphrase what he said, but it boiled down to if we were still waiting on CIA assessment, we would still be waiting to attack. And so this narrative carried forward. Um, next slide. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. So not only did the narrative carry forward, but if you remember what I said earlier, there was that policy issue, and there was Boren and Nunn who were concerned about the body bags. And so now you have not only the celebrity combatant commander out talking about it, but you have these powerful people within Congress who are saying, why was intelligence so wrong? Why did you tell us there was going to be many more casualties? Why were you so wrong? And so realizing, um, uh, Secretary of Defense Cheney, realizing that there was going to be some questions asked because of these Congress and the combatant commander, he asked his uh, intelligence advisor, a guy named Rich Haver, to go investigate and find out information, conduct an AAR. And so Haver goes out and interviews, and what he tells Haver basically is whenever um, Congress, or whenever intelligence is this wrong about a war, someone's head's going to roll. And so Haver goes out to, to research and investigate, conduct an after-action review. Around the same time, you have Bob Gates, who's getting put up um, for the, finally is going to make it through confirmation as the Director of Central Intelligence. So if you remember previously, or earlier, uh, he was the, going to be the nominee, um, but he had the controversy over Iran-Contra. And so William Webster, Judge Webster, became the DCI. Uh, by this time, though, later in the Bush administration, it was his time. And so, um, and also, now only was his time, but he had been doing some research um, to look to see how the intelligence community should evolve in the post-Cold War world. Um, and so, 
he reaches out, he mean Bob Gates, reaches out to um, uh, Rich Haver and says, you know, I'd like to come speak to uh, Cheney about the future of intelligence and, you know, the way the DOD and the intelligence community can work together. And so Haver sets up a meeting. Um, he wasn't at the meeting. Um, but later that day, when he goes back to speak with Cheney, Cheney tells him, you know, I know I told you to be a thorn in Judge Webster's ass. Now I want you to do all you can to ensure that Bob Gates is successful. And so what that meant was Gates was getting ready to do what they called the Gates Task Force. So he's going to take this national security review that he had done about the way that the intelligence community needed to evolve um, and take the AR from Haver, or informed by the AR from Haver, and they were going to do these task forces. Part of the task force, and a significant part, was looking at national intelligence support to the warfighter. So Gates Task Force recommended the establishment of the Office of Military Affairs. Um, it recommended, um, which basically was an office which still exists, is now the Associate Director of Military Affairs within the CIA. But it put a two-star within the Director of Operations who could ensure that the military's requirements were met to, su to support the warfighter within the CIA. Uh, this organization later on is actually taken out of the Director of Operations and put as an Associate Director of Military Affairs reporting directly to the, the Director of Central Intelligence. Um, so Gates is making these changes. Um, and in my research, what I found is really pretty astute of Cheney and Gates. They realized that if they didn't do something, that some, they were going to be told to do something. Around the same time that they're making these changes, you had Congress. You had the House Criminal Subcommittee on Intelligence, led by Dave McCurdy, and you had the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, led by, led by Dave Boren, two Oklahomans, who were arguing or putting forth legislation that was um, introducing something similar to Office of Military Affairs within the CIA. Um, within the Senate Committee and within Boren's legislation, there was actually the recommendation to establish a director of national intelligence that we would get later on after the Intelligence Reform Terrorism Prevention Act. But because, what I argue in the book, is because of Gates' actions, um, they did not have to pass out legislation. They did not have to have those changes forced upon them. So one of the interesting, when, when I was interviewing Haver, um, the way Haver explained it to me was that because of the rich experience of Gates and Cheney, um, they, kinda, they knew which direction and where the cuts needed to go with the national intelligence. Because remember, at the same time, you had the, the, the peace dividend. And so while they're making these changes and they're increasing um, national intelligence support to the warfighter, there's about a 25% reduction in both the Defense Department budget, and the intelligence budget. So for example, um, the CIA shuttered like 12 stations in Africa at this time. Um, so they were asked to make significant, they were, they were asked to make significant changes to the intelligence community during a time, during a lean time. Um, and, there was all, and they all assumed because of Bush's popularity after Desert Storm, that they were going to have a second term. They didn't think there was any way they would lose. Uh, one of the stories Haver told me, I found, I found uh, kind of funny, 
um, was that Haver, Cheney, and um, Gates were sitting around a room one day, and Gates said, I think we're going to lose this election. And he was laughed. They were laughed at. There's no way we're going to lose it. Um, we all know the story. They did lose it because it wasn't about success in foreign policy. It wasn't about a victorious commander-in-chief. It was about the economy, stupid, right? And so they lose it, and in the place comes uh, President Bill Clinton. The, although Clinton takes office, the focus on national intelligence support to warfighter continues. Um, in March of 1993, so um, shortly after he took office, two months after he sworn in, the Gore Commission um, that was looking to streamline government, reduce government, um, actually looked and argued for an increased national intelligence support to the warfighter. Um, and so this, this, this Gore Commission that was largely focused on domestic spoke about intelligence support to the warfighter. A few years later, in 1995, they, they, they passed Presidential Decision Directive 35. And this is one of the most important things in, in my view. What PDD 35 said was during times of war, the primary mission of national intelligence is to support the warfighter. At that time, um, if you think back, it wasn't as, I would argue, it wasn't as significant then as it became after 2001. When we went from these never-ending wars, and when the war, you know, after the global war on terror, when it became a bat, you know, the whole uh, globe became a battlefield. Um, so it wasn't as significant back then, but it established the conditions um, that I'll get to later about why it was so significant after 2001. Um, also during this time, and, and, and I'll use some examples of operations that were going on to where this wasn't just, you know, policy. Um, I argue in the book that the CIA actually embraced this. And the CIA, despite a lot of reductions, were actually leaning forward to um, support the warfighter. Uh, so, for example, Somalia, 1993. Um, one of the, uh, well, the first casualties in Somalia was a guy named Lawrence Freeman. Uh, he was a CIA paramilitary uh, officer, a former Special Forces NCO. He was the first casualty in, in Somalia. Uh, why is that important? It's important because he was on a mission in support of the warfighter when he was a casualty. Um, in Bosnia, the CIA DIA worked together to collect human intelligence in support of force protection. This was unique. There's been there've been times in the past where the CIA and DOD worked together, um, but it was very seldom that the primary focus of the CIA was supporting the warfighter. Was doing operations to, to collect force protection information to support the warfighter, to collect uh, information to support planning. That was unique. And as I argue in the book, it was also a little risky. The CIA was not created as a, um, you know, a, a supporting effort to DOD. It was created to provide intelligence so the policymaker can make a decision. Um, but because of PDD-35, because of some other stuff, that focus was starting to change. It was getting to be more of a support in the warfighter. 
So one of, one of, the, one of the interesting guys, um, and I mentioned, I mentioned there's a few people that I'm, I'm kind of harsh on. Uh, uh, DCI John Deutsch was another one. So Deutsch was, uh, was Clinton's second uh, CIA director. His first CIA director notoriously had a bad relationship with the president. So bad that there was a, during the time, there was a uh, plane that uh, crashed into the front lawn of the White House, and people joked that it was the CIA director trying to get a meeting with the president. Um, but John Deutsch was interesting in the bench because he came over from the Department of Defense, and he never wanted to be CIA director. He wanted to be Secretary of Defense. Um, and, you know, not saying that ambition's bad, but the bad part of it um, is he didn't hide it. And so if you've ever been over to CIA headquarters, there's the bubble. The bubble is where uh, whenever someone comes to speak, it's like a big auditorium, that's where they, they come to speak. In the bubble, he told CIA officers, um, or made it clear to them that it was basically, um, the CIA was a short stay. That his main objective was to get back to the Department of Defense. He made it clear to them that he um, appreciated military officers more than he did intelligence officers. Um, and he wasn't the only one. He brought individuals over that um, uh, made it clear to CIA officers that they didn't think very highly of him. Um, one of the other interesting things that he did that doesn't really have any connection to the uh, National Intelligence Support of the Warfighter, but I think it's very important for the post-9-11 world, he, in he introduced um, what they called the uh, um, Torcelli Rules. And so around when he was the CIA director, there's a lot of allegations against the CIA. Uh, one of the allegations was the CIA had introduced crack cocaine into Los Angeles. Another allegation was the CIA was um, uh, a lot of their assets were, had human rights violations. And so he'd instituted that the CIA had to go through all of the files on their human assets and if there was some um, human rights uh, accusations, violation accusations, they had to review the files. Now, he did not say that that automatically meant they had to get rid of the asset, um, but he made it clear that it would be awful difficult to make an argument why that asset should stay. Um, this, was, this had a very, I guess, freezing effect when it came to recruiting assets at the CIA. Um, People didn't think, you know, if the individual had human rights abuses, you know, why risk recruiting them um, if they're just going to be, you know, it's not going to be approved. Uh, and as you can imagine, after 9-11, um, there was some concern that because of these rules that um, uh, access to certain terrorist organizations and uh, um, other of interest um, uh, were lost during this time frame. And so... Um, he, the reason I bring him up is because, and I, one of the things I'll highlight later is the importance of individuals. Um, he really pushed for the national intelligence support to the warfighter. He really viewed the intelligence mission as supporting and enabling the commander. Um, one of the, um, as you can see in the quote, he believed that the sink was one of the most important, if not the most important customer for the combatant commander. Um, he's also the one, as I mentioned earlier, that moved, he brought in his own three-star admiral. Um, he increased the admiral's position 
um, uh, made them associate director reporting directly to the CIA uh, director. So he really increased the influence um, of the military uh, within the CIA. Okay. Go back and check a little ahead. And so now we're in the late 90s. And there's starting to be this, this concern with, you know, we did need to improve national intelligence support to the warfighter. That was important. But maybe we've gone too far. And so you had commissions like the Aspen Brown Commission. You had a Georgetown study. You had a Council on Foreign Relations uh, study who were arguing, hey, we've gone too far. We now have our national intelligence largely focused on supporting the warfighter. Um, and we need to... We need to redirect a little bit and have an increase the support in the war. Uh, I'm sorry, to the policymaker. Well, then 9/11 occurs. 9/11. After 9/11, there was not there was no longer going to be an argument about supporting the policymaker, supporting the warfighter. Um, I believe 9/11 is very important because it gave a common focus to both institutions that was lacking um, after the Cold War but also gave a very operational or tactical focus to both organizations. Um, and so my book goes into the early years. It doesn't really go into the, the operations. As a former uh, CIA officer and a current military officer, it's, it's awful difficult to get through pre-publication review talking about operations. Um, but it does, it does talk about a lot of the personalities involved. And this is where I'll, I'll highlight the third person I'm pretty critical of in the book, Rumsfeld. Um, so Rumsfeld, um, as we all, as most of you probably know, it's it's. I don't think it's a secret. He was not happy with the ability of the CIA to go into Afghanistan quicker than the DoD. He was not he was not very happy about that. He thought um, when I re, uh, interviewed some of his former deputies, some people who were on the Joint Staff when he was the Secretary of Defense, they told me that he used to always say, you know, um, we're like the baby bird. And the CIA is just dangling the worm in front of us. We're depending on them to feed us, and I want to become independent. And so earlier I mentioned the globe becoming the, the battlefield, right? Um, and so why that was important is Rumsfeld viewed with, with giving um, SOCOM, Special Operations Command, the mission, the lead in the global war on terrorism, defining the world as a battlefield. He was able to say... Um, operations throughout the globe were considered intelligence preparation of the battlefield. They weren't clandestine collection operations. And why is that important? It's important because um, if you're doing clandestine operations, you're doing intelligence collection, you, you have to coordinate through the station chief within that country. But if he calls it intelligence preparation of the battlefield, you do not have to coordinate through this, uh, the station chief. So he was sending out teams who were basically doing clandestine collection um, without coordination. This um, increased the tension between the CIA and the DOD. Um, and so there was, there was a, it, it, and it played out before Congress. It played out before oversight committees. Um, the DOD Many times they're saying the relationship's fine. The CIA um, and individuals like uh, 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 former head of the director of operations, Rodriguez, were saying, no, it's not okay. 
Um, they're in Latin America, they're in other places doing operations um, under the guise of intelligence preparation of the battlefield that's disrupting our operations. Um, it's also causing tension with our foreign partners who are unaware of these operations. Um, and so this relationship with, with Rumsfeld, um, he, in my view, through my research, he made the relationship much more tense. Um, as I mentioned, relationships are important. Eventually, Rumsfeld's um, pushed aside. Gates came in. Um, General Hayden came in, replaces Porter Goss at the CIA. You have Jim Clapper that comes in as Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. And these individuals were people very familiar with each other, and they worked well together, and they were not parochial. And so around 1996, you start seeing the relationship improve, um, and you, start, you started to see them work um, together uh, well once again. There's my... Uh, that, uh, uh, one, one of the individuals I interviewed was Rich Haber, and he's one of the, the most interesting, fascinating interviews I did. And so uh, he, he told this story, and, I, and I'll share it with you. He, he told a story of visiting, and, well, first a little background on Haber. Haber had been the intelligence advisor to Cheney during the Gulf War. And um, he was also the individual who came up with the idea of what would eventually become, or one of the people who came up with the idea of what would eventually become the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and the need for the DOD to have that. Um, he told me a story about, um, he, Haber was outside government, but he gets a call um, from Rumsfeld that Rumsfeld wants to meet with him. And so he goes to one of Rumsfeld's haunts in Georgetown, and he gives this description to me, because Haber's a great storyteller, he gives this description of like a godfather meeting, going into the back area with Rumsfeld with like a, you know, candlelight type of stuff. And so he's talking to Rumsfeld, and Rumsfeld goes, I want you to be my uh, intelligence advisor. And so uh, Haber looks at me and he's like, why would I want that job? I've already done it. And Rumsfeld, you know, quickly uh, retorts, who, who do you think you're talking to? I've already done this also. Um, and so... So let me go to the six con conclusions that I pulled from the book and then open it up for, uh, for questions. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, there's a strong link, I believe, to Goldwater and Nichols. Um, at the same time that there's this push for national intelligence support, I'm sorry, the push for increased joint jointness, there's also a call for increased national intelligence support to the warfighter um, that I had not read about uh, prior to doing the research. Um, I also argued that the, the 1990s set the foundation for the post-9-11 um, interoperability within the CIA, between the CIA and DOD. Uh, many of the individuals I spoke with, uh, it was funny, so I interviewed General Petraeus. And uh, if you've ever interviewed General Petraeus, um, he can be an intimidating figure, and I think he intends it to be that way. Um, and so his first question he says to me was, he says, uh, you have 10 seconds, tell me your thesis argument. So I, you know, I tell him, number two, and he goes, I disagree. It was, it was the um, exigencies of war that forced this relationship to improve. And while I think that war, as I mentioned before, that the post-9-11 provided a common purpose, I think we're selling short the structures that were put in place in the 1990s. I think that without the 1990s, without the Office of Military Affairs, without the National Intelligence Support Teams, without this relationship already 
there, the structure. I think the development of the relationship would occur, but would have occurred, but it been a lot more painful. Um, and I think ignoring that is really understand, underselling the value of the 1990s in this relationship. Um, the third one, uh, you know, some of the pushback I got is people always point to Vietnam. They will say, well, you had cords in Vietnam. You had, you had Bob Comer, you had Colby, you had them running cords. Um, I push back a little bit. You know, I'm not saying that CIA and DOD never worked together. But I would argue that when they did work together, they really they worked together in maybe parallel operations, but they were really focused on their own institutions' operations. And so, if you take Quartz, for example, Quartz fell under Mac V, but that was really a request of Comer to place it under Mac V. Uh, the commander of Mac V did not really, you know, have a lot of uh, a sway over Comer. In the 19, argued from the 1980s and into the, and then established in the 1990s, you have what I call a quasi-subordination of the CIA to the Department of Defense. So instead of having these parallel operations, or operations, um, collaborative operations, maybe a better way to say it, you had the CIA being told that they had to collect intelligence for um, force protection. You had them being told they had to collect intelligence to support military planning. Um, as a, a military officer, as a planner, I look at that as a subordination. They're being told to collect information to enable operations. Um, and that leads me to number four, friction over the purpose of intelligence. So when I started this research, I've never been a military intelligence officer. My um, intelligence background was as a civilian. Um, and it had been a while. So I wanted to go uh, kind of refresh myself. And so I went to an Intelligence and National Security Alliance conference. And I sat in the back of the room just listening. If you've ever been to an uh, INSA conference, or if you haven't, it's, it's really a great opportunity. One of the valuable things is you, you get to see perspectives from the different INTs. So SIGINT, HUMANT, MAZINT, all the different INTs. Um, I walked out of there thinking, we might have an intelligence community, but we all see intelligence slightly different. So, for example, I was a human officer. Um, when I was a human officer, we would always talk about, when we would define intelligence, it was really focused on what we were going to send an asset in to collect. So one of our focuses, it had to be clandestinely acquired. Um, and why that was important is we wouldn't send an asset in if it was open source. Because why put a person at risk if you could just Google it? And so in my mind, you know, whenever I hear open source intelligence, it's so far me go, that's kind of an oxymoron. Um, but then I would sit there and I would listen to other individuals and the way that they would describe intelligence. There were similarities, but there's still distinctness. And so it started getting me to think over the purpose of intelligence. To me, you have intelligence to enable operations, and you have intelligence to inform policymakers. Intelligence to enable operations is so a commander can execute his mission. To me, that's much different um, than intelligence to inform a policymaker. And I think it becomes very important in the CIA DOD relationship because the individuals that you need to have as assets to tell you force protection information or maybe to provide you information to enable planning 
is much different in, in many cases than the individual who has access to information that's needed for policymakers to make decisions. Um, and this goes back to the Petraeus story. Petraeus said to me when, I, when he disagreed with, with, with my comment, he said, I think the CIA can chew gum and walk at the same time. And while I appreciate what he said, I disagreed because the, there's finite resources. And resources and, and assets focused on collecting information to enable operations is assets or is, is taking away resources to identify assets who can provide intelligence um, to understand the world. Um, oh, and then, and then uh, with number four, one of the interesting things I said, and this didn't really cross, um, and it, I guess it wasn't really based on the position they were sitting on or their back. And what I mean by that is just because an individual was a military officer didn't mean that they were focused on um, intelligence to enable operations. Um, but one of the senior um, leaders I interviewed said to me that intelligence um, is the best or is the, the most important when it can identify the individual behind the door. And to me, that was a very tactical outlook. That was a very enable operations type of perspective. Um, but then there was other, and he was a former military um, and a senior leader in the intelligence community. But there's other individuals like General Hayden who understood that, you know, there was a friction, there was a rub between intelligence to inform operations and intelligence to understand the world. And he even gave a warning to General Petraeus um, when General Petraeus became CIA director. He said, be very cautious because the CIA has quickly become the OSS of the 21st century. Number five, individuals matter. Tying it back to Hayden, to people like Gates, individuals do matter. If you look at the relationship post-2006 between the CIA and DOD, you see the collaboration, I would argue, is because of individuals. It was because of individuals with a no, very non-parochial uh, outlook. Uh, compare that to individuals like Schwarzkopf, like Rumsfeld, who are very parochial. Uh, it makes a big difference. Um, and then finally, um, I view this as a symptom of a broader militarization of foreign policy. And so there's been a lot of writing out there uh, recently. Uh, there's been warnings. Um, Admiral Stavridis just, just warned about the cuts to the State Department's budget and the too much focus on the military uh, uh, element of national power. Um, and I fit my research in that because um, I think the push and the focus towards um, having the intelligence, national intelligence community, particularly the CIA, support the warfighter is because um, of the dominance of the military and foreign policy. And I think that's something that we should be concerned about. And I will end with that, just to highlight, it's not just some junior lieutenant colonel that believes that. There's been military leaders um, who also think that maybe we've, we've militarized our foreign policy a little too much. Um, with that, I think we have, I guess about 35 minutes. I'd uh, be happy to answer some questions. Yeah. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, and then we'll go here. Hello again, David. Uh, Chris Orr, former Air Force officer, uh, former DHS, EVP, and ICE, and former private military contractor. Uh, thanks for your time. Um, since you talk about the peace dividend, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, 
much accepted paradigm that the CIA failed to anticipate the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, my own research for my master's program at AMU shows that's a bit of a gross oversimplification. It's more complicated than that. Won't go into more details right now. But uh, be that as may, perception about the CIA's failure to anticipate the Soviet class, how did that in particular affect the CIA's relationship with the DLP? Yeah, you know, I, that's a good question. And I, I don't know if I could. I, I don't I don't know how it affected the relationship with the DOD. Um, I think it tarnished. I would I would say what's probably more important. Um, I think it fed into the policymakers' perspective of the CIA, um, and so you know, kind of linked or in a similar fashion to the way that they, what what the policymaker viewed as the CIA's uh, poor analysis on how long the De Desert Storm was going to take. I think that this. Um, what some perceive as a failure of the CIA to predict the, the downfall of the Soviet Union, um, I think that fed into that also. I would argue a lot of that's kind of unfair. I think the expectations of intelligence and what intelligence can provide um, is sometimes, uh, um, I think they, we expect our intelligence professionals to be wizards and we expect them to have clairvoyance, I guess is a, is a, yeah, is, is a better word. So I think a lot of it's unfair. Um, I'm an undergrad at George Mason. I had one course on intro to the IC. So, uh, just two quick questions. First off, where was the DIA in all this? I understand that their, their main mission is fighting support to the warfighter. They've been around since, since the 60s. So, what was their relationship like with the DOD and the CIA in the time period that you studied? And second, I, I think at least in this decade, if we look at the IC as a whole, the Defense Department, including the DIA, they have around 80% of the budget or a huge majority of it. And how did that proportion change between the collapse of the Soviet Union, Desert Storm, and the latest period that you studied? Yeah. So the, 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 the DIA question, great question. So part of my research, I, I look at the DIA. Um, and so I, so the DIA is always, there's been a rough relationship with the, the DOD as a whole in, in, in regards to the DIA and human collection. And so the in, in human, the clandestine human mission within within the Department of Defense is really falls on the DIA. Um, but the DIA has not been the greatest, or I would say the Department of Defense has not been the greatest in managing human. And so I'll give you a count of, a few snapshots in history. So in the nineties, human was really a bill payer for other big weapon systems like artillery. And so a lot of the um, human ability was reduced within and a lot of it um, uh, and what became important after 9-11 uh, was a tactical human. A lot of these, and that's not really DIA, I mean that falls within the services a lot, but there's all kind of tied together. Um, in fact, after 9-11, um, a gentleman named General uh, Mike Enos, who um, was a Marine Corps two-star, who was, um, his, one of his last positions was the head of community intelligence, community human intelligence. He had to set up um, basically tactical collection training um, because there was a lack of, of human capability at, to send to the brigades, the divisions, to collect atmospheric type information. Um, in roughly 2012, the, um, there was a proposal put forward to establish the, the Defense Clandestine Service. And the Defense Clandestine Service, uh, what was kind of surprising to me as being a former CIA officer, when I heard about the Defense Clandestine Service, I thought to myself, oh, the CIA is going to hate this. Um, what I found through my interviews, the CIA actually liked it. And the reason the CIA liked it 
is because there was a lot of military support requirements being thrown to the CIA, collection requirements. Um, one chief of station said, you know, about 75% of his requirements was in support of the military. Um, what the Defense Plan Essence Service was going to do is you were going to have uh, um, CIA trained case officers from DOD who would be working with the station, station chiefs, um, who could collect DOD requirements. And so that would open up some uh, human collection capability CIA case officers um, so the CIA could go collect more of their policymaker requirements. Um, what I found out during the interviews, um, you know, because if, if you, the, the Defense Plan National Service does exist. It is maybe saying a shell of what it's envisioned, what it was envisioned, it's probably a little harsh, but it's not to the size of what it was initially supposed to be. Um, and when I interviewed people, I was a little surprised when I interviewed senior leaders because here was an organization that the CIA was supportive of and the DOD wanted. So why was it cut uh, so much? Um, a few people, probably three or four that I interviewed, actually blamed a lot of it on General Flynn. So General Flynn was head of DIA at the time. Um, this was a... The Defense Plan Design Service was kind of a vision of Mike Vickers, who was Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence at the time, basically uh, uh, Flynn's boss. Um, uh, and what Flynn did, according to these senior leaders, was he went around and was telling people about the Defense Clandestine Service um, without uh, socializing it with the overseers, without, without socializing it to Hipsy and Sissy about this capability. Um, and so Hipsy and Sissy were you know, a little frustrated, angry, um, and there was actually a quote I found that said, if the CIA needs more case officers, the CIA can come before us and ask for more funding. Um, and so it was kind of a bureaucratic misstep. Of Flynn's is why they argued uh, about it. Um, uh, but I would argue that from the 90s, yes, we did have a DIA, but from the human aspect, it's always been underfunded. The, the military has shown um, an inability to manage the careers of its human collectors, um, and this has frustrated the overseers also. Yeah. Did I answer your question? Okay. Yes, sir. Actually, I was in Beirut for the months leading up to the uh, bombing of the Marine Barracks, and I had a chance to see all of this stuff firsthand on the ground. And uh, the way you portrayed it is, is not quite the way I remember it. In other words, you're saying that that is then seen in retrospect as a failure of intelligence, whereas when I was there, there was so much intelligence you didn't know what to do with it. In other words, uh, you know, first all the, the intelligence officers or the captains on the ship, and those people got, got the uh, top secret intel brief, you know, every morning they read it before, before the breakfast. And um, I talked, even, even down in Cairo, I talked to a defense intelligence agency officer after I left the Beirut area. And uh, he seemed extremely well informed about who did what bombings and, and, you know, so forth and so on. I mean, there wasn't any lack of intelligence. Plus, at the time, the Israelis were still in Beirut, in the southern part of the city. They had a, they had a, um, a checkpoint on the side and road that stopped all vehicles coming up the side and road, so forth and so on. They had their own intelligence, which was excellent. So, uh, and, and even to the point of uh, 
we were passing disinformation out, for example, uh, uh, you know, shredding fake cables and putting that in the trash so that people would pick it up and spend hours putting the shredded cables back together and have fake information. So I'm just saying it didn't seem, unless you're going to say that the idea of intelligence is that everybody has to know in advance every event, uh, then, then there wasn't any left. For example, even, even before I got there, so that, I'm sorry, I got there in the middle of the summer of 83, but the, the front of the, uh, the old embassy was totally bombed out, and that was supposedly when they were having a meeting of the CIA staff. Yeah, and they lost, the station lost most of their, all the people on the senior. I actually talked to somebody here recently who said he was at that meeting, and they sent him out to get some sandwiches, and then we came back, and everybody was dead. So, so that, there's, a of, there's still a lot of people around who were on the ground at the time. And so to get back to the bombing specifically, so when I was there at the, uh, at the base, Airport, say in August, they had shelling from the hills there. So, so I would, um, yeah, I'm, I'm on the okay. So they had the shelling there, and then, and then the Marines, same thing in August, a separate, a separate uh, events were under attack by APCs were being run by the Druze in town, and so forth. And so, uh, the, the Marines who were killed were, of course, in this, in this uh, very, in this building had very thick walls, and officers were in a separate building. But the officers put the, the enlisted in this building because they thought that it provided protection from the shelling that was coming down from the hill, which was 120-millimeter shelling. The mistake was that they didn't expect the guy was going to uh, pull off the highway with a truck bomb, drive right in the middle of the building, collapse the building, and kill everybody in the building. So it, it really, if you, in my view, looking back on it, uh, the, you know, with the failure of having a correct security perimeter, because there was nothing but this measly fence, you know, chicken wire fence uh, between the highway that the guy drove through and the building. It was a failure of intelligence. No, no, it, with all the bombs yeah. going off and everything, they knew it was a dangerous situation. Plus, yeah. the Civil War had heated up, and instead of being a neutral force, the multinational force had joined sides with the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Christian forces that were led at the time by the person who later became General Howard. No, and, 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 and I didn't mean to give the perception that I thought it was intelligent, I apologize. Um, because it was interesting, you, you brought up the, the, the position of the barracks. Um, it, there was actually a congressional uh, uh, co-deal that went out there. And I found it fascinating as a field artillery, former field artillery officer, um, that the co-deal was commenting on the indirect fire risk. Um, but the same co-deal, in the same report, said that intelligence support to the commander was excellent. Was excellent. But then afterwards in the long commission, what they said was, well, it wasn't excellent because there was too many reports. There was too much information and the commander didn't know what to decide. You know? And what I always what I find very interesting over time, so you can use that as, you know, initially it's really good support. Then after the barracks bombing, well, the commander couldn't make a decision because he had too much information, his information overload, overload. You see a similar argument during, between Desert Storm and the post-9-11. So one of the things that Schwarzkopf complained about was even if you gave me a lot of intelligence support, there was too much information. And it was difficult for me to make a decision because I was just too much information. And there were competing information. And so the analysis wasn't in agreement. 
Well, then after 9-11 and the 9-11 Commission report, what was one of the arguments? The intelligence community was in too much agreement. And so I, I, I agree with you, and I apologize if I gave the perception of the intelligence failure. I think, I think you know, if you look at, I, in that part of the book that I bring up, I'm kind of critical of Congress. Um, because, you know, Congress didn't think it was their role to comment on the time of intelligence, but they thought they could comment on, you know, um, indirect fire capabilities. Yes, sir? Yeah, uh, John Mueller from Cato and Ohio State. Could you talk more about your central distinction about supporting the, the policymakers or the uh, war fighters? Uh, it seems to me the CIA would say they always fight, they always support both. Yeah. Uh, there isn't any real distinction. They're trying to do a good job and help everybody, except obviously if there's no war going on, in which case there's nobody to support that end. So, uh, can you explain that shift from one to the other? Yeah, so, so, so my interesting, I, I would argue that the CIA views themselves as they will, their, their main client is a policymaker, and they will support the warfighter, and they find the relationship important when they have information that is of value to the warfighter and can inform, so threat reporting, stuff like that. Um, but their main focus isn't to target assets with access to information that would inform a commander's decision on the ground or planning or force protection. If through their assets and their collection and their meetings they come across that information, they think the important the relationship's important enough to share or it's important enough to share through the relationship, but they don't want to identify they don't want their collection priorities to be based on what a commander needs. Does that make sense, sir? And and so the implication is that they're spending less time on policy. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, you know, because in my mind, there's finite resources. Um, if you're targeting, as as a case officer, if you're focused on targeting individuals with access to, you know, um, details that would inform a you know a uh, combatant commander's war plan, um, you can't focus as attention, or you have to focus less attention on individuals with access to policymakers. So the, the person you'd be targeting is, is going to be different. Um, and so you're focusing more effort towards the, the warfighter. Taking it away from the other. Taking it away from the policymakers. So, yeah. um, here and then here. Um, hi, uh, I'm Scott. Uh, I just finished um, my internship with President Fabric, and I'm going to another level. Um, so I was wondering, you talked about the CIA having different sort of target priorities in DOD. Do they have different collection practices as well that fits with their sort of um, organizational mission? Or is it, I mean, I'm not sure if they actually release any of that information. Um, or do they basically do the same thing DOD does when they have a target they want to uh, So um, I mentioned earlier the uh, General Ennis, and, uh, Ennis, I'm sorry, when he, when he established, he increased human intelligence collection he established the training site was actually in San Antonio, Texas, um, to train more more case officers. Like he utilized the same. He actually told me he took the the manual from the CIA on how they train case officers um, to inform his syllabus or what he what he was using um, his manuals to train these 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 collectors um, minus the platform information. And so what I mean by that is the CIA is operating on different locations. Um, the individuals they're targeting are, are different. It's kind of tied into the previous question. Um, uh, but the interaction with the human 
is the same. So some a lot of the principles, the spotting, the assessing, the developing the relationship, they're going to be very similar. Um, but where the individual sits that they're targeting and the information that they have access to is where I would argue from a human side it's going to be different.